Hey folks, join us at the Radio Carom Trivia Night on Friday the 1st of March at the Carom Patterson Lake Sports Pavilion. Tickets are only $25 per person and includes entry into our door prize and a drink on arrival. Wonderful. Don't pass up this opportunity to win bragging rights for the rest of the year and win some fabulous prizes. Tickets are still available at Radio Carom's website, radiocarom.org. We'll see you there, folks. Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. We are broadcasting to you live on Radio Karam from the unceded Aboriginal land of the Eastern Kulin Nations. Tonight on Radio Architecture with Ilana Rasbash, we will probably speak a fair bit about geology and earth sciences. But first, I want to acknowledge that Every live conversation on this program is broadcast and streamed live from the Karam Karam Swamp, an ancient and dynamic ecosystem, remnants of which are protected across the Edith Vale Seaford wetlands. There is archaeological evidence of Aboriginal occupation, settlement and agriculture in the wetlands 2,000 years prior to colonisations. This was the moment in geological time when sea levels fell and the ancient swamp was formed. However, while water levels were higher, about 7,000 years ago, Bunurong people paddled on wooden canoes through the shallow tidal estuary collecting mollusks. We acknowledge their ongoing connection to lands, water and sky. And if you'd love to learn more about the geology and fossil shells of the Karam Karam, you can contact the friends of Edithvale Seaford Wetlands or visit them during their bird hide opening hours. As always, welcome to those who are watching us on the live stream this evening and tuning in on the wireless for radio. You can join the conversation on 0493 213 831 or text us. Text us on that text line or hit the contact us link on Instagram if you miss those numbers. I'm really excited for tonight's broadcast my conversation partner this evening is Dr. Emma Jackson, an architect with an abiding interest in earth sciences. Her perspective on our unique continent began while working as a field assistant to acclaimed naturalist Harry Butler in the northwest of Australia while studying science and architecture at the University of Western Australia. She now produces large-scale textile artworks that reveal 4.6 billion years of earth behaviour. Emma has worked for a number of esteemed Australian architecture practices and until recently has been an academic at RMIT School of Architecture and Urban Design. Dr Jackson completed her PhD at RMIT in 2019, excerpts from which, along with her teaching practice, have been published internationally and exhibited at the Venice Architecture Biennale in 2021. In addition to architecture, Emma also studied animation and interactive media at RMIT and her animated short film, Off the Chains, premiered at the 2002 Melbourne International Film Festival. In 2021, Jackson was awarded the Australian Tapestry Design Prize for Architects in her, for her design titled Time Shouts. And in 2023, Dr. Jackson was selected by the NGV as one of five designers to exhibit their work as part of Focus and Melbourne Design Festival 2023. Welcome to the program, Emma. Thank you, Alana. Love to be here. So, so glad to have you and to finally have this conversation and bring together so many different threads, pardon the pun, because you're very much into textile works at the moment, which we'll touch on today. But there's been an ongoing interest and inquiry about this place, about where we are broadcasting from. And we've spoken about hydrogeology. We've had um, an expert director of sustainable water from Oricon come on. We've often thought about the Edith Val Seaford wetlands and how the Minifee Van Shike pro- project sits in this context. And there's this process of, 
of grounding, of finding where we are. And for me, that feels fundamental to your practice. Yeah, I think so. Even as an architecture student or before that, I sort of, I'm interested in how we build on this planet, but it does feel a bit like an eggshell, I guess, on an egg, the way we cover it in roads and buildings and, you know, that there's this um, other thing sitting underneath, you know, that lies deeper, that's a, you know, deeper stories or... Um, uh, the, the yolk to the run yolk. with your egg yeah. metaphor. Yeah, and I think that it doesn't necessarily need to be exclusive, you know, um, sit outside of that. We could build and acknowledge uh, what we what we sit on top of so that we could have a more, I guess, responsive um, engagement and, you know, as cities are getting bigger and... Um, and suburban sprawl, you get less and less connection, I guess, and you need to go out from the city. Um, you know, national parks and whatever uh, give you that sense of connection to country or to the landscape, to rock formations. But it's not impossible to also gain that, you know, in the place we live if we think it through carefully. I will definitely drill into why that's important from a design perspective. But I want to ask if you have any ideas about why that's actually important from an emotional perspective or a citizen perspective. I think, um, I guess it's a, it's a sense of belonging really. It's sort of understanding on a deeper level what you walk on. And also, you know... We're all just dumb humans, really, and try as hard as we can. We're still building dumb buildings, you know, um, dumb streets. And I just think that the natural world, that the earth has more to um, to contribute and mm. to we could engage. Um, so much to learn from. So much to learn for. So, so many more interesting ideas, you know. So um, and I just think it. It helps with understanding, I guess, the cycle of the seasons and what, what might grow somewhere, how you might be. You know those um, when you cross over from Victoria to New South Wales and there's a sign that, say, that says you've crossed over and you sort of get out of the car and there's nothing apparent other than the sign that would, would indicate Otherwise, one yeah, side. so arbitrary. So arbitrary. Yet what we've got in the ground is not arbitrary, you know, so we could actually have those we could have those lines saying you've crossed from the Silurian to the Devonian, you know, two different epochs in geology, which would be super interesting. And, you know, it could determine suburbs, you know, it could determine the line for suburbs or um, when we were initially embarking on um, drawing up the whole of Australia, we had one comic, serious but comic moment where we thought, they've got the states wrong. They've completely got the states of Australia wrong. They, you know, they should be doing geologically they should be following, and we drew it up. So it much made much more sense from a geological perspective. That's epic. <laughs> yeah, it's good I've got the drawing if you want it. I would love to see it, and I'm sure if you share it with us, we'll put it up on the Instagram so the <laughs> listeners can have a look at that image as well. Well, unpacking those layers, unpacking what lies beneath, let's go back to the beginning. And there's a question I'm always curious to ask all my guests is, what's your earliest memory of a building or place? A building or place. Um, I think it's uh, – I've got a lot but um, probably it's the supermarket in West Africa because it was just this concrete brutalist building that was kind of poorly built but it just um, – it had uh, – it, it's on the equator so the buildings in West Africa like Vietnam and those buildings, they're not containers so there's these sort of series of your – in the car park, then you're outside, in an outside, inside space, and then you're inside in a kind of inside space. It's not so defined. Indoor, outdoor is very mixed because of the climate, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It's incredibly it's, hot. It's Yeah. How old were you at the time? Uh, five or six. Five or six. Yeah. Were you, were you spending time there as a, as a child? Yeah, well, my dad was an expat, so he worked for Shell as a geologist. And um, so we were in West Africa for about four years 
so the geology roots come in very early for you, actually. Well, it, it was second we, best to mother's yeah, work. Yeah, it, it, we lived where the uh, I guess the resources were, and it was defined by the type of geology and. Um, and my dad was and still is incredibly um, engaged in geology. He's actually the rock doctor. Um, and I learned to speak geology really young. So why architecture? Architecture. Well, actually I came at it twice and decided it was not for me. Um, so I quit after a week and then I went and did science. Um, uh, sort of more, I was more science, maths, chemistry, um, student, and then um, and then decided to give another bell after two years of science. Um, and I I think because it I think it, to be honest, probably shouldn't say this when you're interviewing architecture students because it wasn't as um, I guess earnest as it probably should have been. I think it was because it was so immersive, like it felt like the kind of career where you could sort of roll up your sleeves and bring all your interests to it and not so much because I love buildings, I don't Mm. think. But it's an incredible foundation and just by your list of successes in the the bio just shows how transferable those skills are and those thinking skills of a designer and how architecture is about ideas. We often say this on the program and we often discuss that with listeners that it's all about ideas. And so you, you've had this expansive, expansive journey onwards. T- tell me about the time spent with Harry Butler. Oh, that was, that was great. That was honestly um, an experience of a lifetime. So we would go up to the islands off the northwest of WA where, the, um, where they were uh, mining for oil, petroleum, offshore oil and natural gas. And we would monitor the wildlife um, to make sure and just monitor how it was going with um, with the mining, uh, and it was it, it was what would it have been eighty ninety sorry, so I was twenty to twenty three, and we'd go up to this island where it was early days of FIFO, and it was one hundred percent men on these islands. So Harry would go a, a sort of couple of days early and just pull down all the calendars, the rude nudie calendars. And just brief the men on how they were to talk to me. Uh, so it was it was a completely different experience. But we'd just walk up and down rows and count mutton birds um, in forty five degree heat, and grid them up. I'd shout it out, or um, Harry would shout it out, and Maggie, his wife, would record it. And then we'd have these incredible swims um, off the island and see all sorts of wildlife. And, and it was just like, it was, I don't know if anybody out there remembers it, but, um, it was just like the show. He'd point things out and yeah, it was great. Wow. What a, what a special experience. It's a rare moment as, as well. How long did you do that for? Three years. Three yeah. years. Yeah. And then return back to architecture. I was doing it while I was architecture student. So I was doing it in the holidays and, um, through Christmas, and, um, yeah, it was incredible. I mean, it just gave me such a unique perspective on, I guess, Australia and the north and, it, it, you know, included in mining. And I guess the strongest thing Harry gave me was that sense that we are part of nature. It's not we look after nature and we have to be careful we don't destroy nature. We, we are nature as well. So it is a you know, it is a big ecosystem. So, you know, I think he got a lot of um, flack for it, but he saw mining, you couldn't stop mining, but how do we also engage with it so that we're monitoring and we, we're sort of accountable for any damage that it's doing? Hmm. I'm, I'm visualising these stunning beaches. It's pretty amazing. Although I have to say there's one funny story where I went up on the third time and watch the video and, um, you know, I would just be wearing a bikini with a man's shirt over the top and they told me I had to wear a full bodysuit because of the Portuguese man of war, the sea wasp, the um, box jellyfish, which right. is lethal. And I went to Harry and said, I don't, is this a new thing? Is, is, it, is it just, is the box jellyfish just come in recently? And he went, oh, no, I've just never shown you the video before. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, so, H&S did not exist then? There was no OH&S. <laughs> so we didn't wear the full body suit, no. But Wow. But I was with Harry, so I didn't have to worry. Yeah, I mean, you were with an icon. <laughs> <laughs> was that the first time you were exposed to these, like, ideas of mining and the habitation occupation of the north, northwest of Australia? I think so, although... Growing up in WA, going to primary school there, it's a very kind of proud state of its natural um, landscape and uh, and everyone's very aware, a lot more than I've noticed on the East Coast, a lot more aware of the scale of the state, the age of the state, the sort of majesty of it, the diversity, the different kinds of kind of everybody gets out in camper vans and does the, you know, does the sort of, Ten top things. The so East Coast doesn't realise how big WA is. No, I don't think they do. I don't think I even grapple with how big it is. <laughs> no, it's insane, and it's it's got you know like Mars-like landscapes down to you know incredible you know white beaches and crystalline sea down near Esperance, and yeah, it's incredible. And then the the land meets the sea. Yeah, we're, we're just on a completely different ocean. Yeah, so, so lucky to be in these places in Australia. Your your PhD all about an alternative occupation of Australia, finding a different way to create architecture, finding a different different language, a different way to bring it into existence, but focusing on that region of the Pilbara. What what really drew you to it? We've described some of these beautiful moments, but was there a single magical spark there? I think I just wanted to get back there, to be honest. So um, I remember people saying to me, why are you doing a PhD uh, in this, you know, no man's land? Um, and seriously, I just wanted to, to kind of get back to that uh, extremeness of it. You know, it's just so confronting and it's a part of Australia, I think, people aren't as aware of but it could it really pushes the boundaries to know that it's there pushes the boundaries of what Australia is because I think we're just so used to thinking about Australia in the south and the more temperate uh, livable part of Australia that you sort of forget that there's this extraordinary um, sort of part of the north where it rejects us Mm. you know it rejects the way we occupy it rejects the way we build um, and it's so interesting for those reasons. Rejects our ignorance. Yeah, it just spits us out. <laughs> Choose you are. Are there any lessons for you from your time that you spent up there, but either on field work or with Harry, that you've you've either you've held on to your whole life? I think just that responsiveness to the place, and also just noticing the the joyous stuff that happens there. So, in architecture, and a lot of I guess art practice there's this search for glamorous design or stunning you know buildings and there's a a bit of an aversion to I guess what we might label bogan culture and that there's a sort of narrative around that which is a, a bit negative and so a lot of the north has is cloaked in that and I guess you look at it and you think there's this place that's so hot it's, you know, um, little kids go down the metal slides and burn their butts, you know. That's how hot it is. So um, yet people go up there and you look further and you'll know this because you helped me with my PhD. You look at um, Satnav, you look at um, Google Earth and you just see all these incredible doughies in the desert that are like some inscript- joyous inscription and you realise that there's people who get out there on their motorbikes and they just tear out, they fill their tank up and they know how far half a tank is so that they can get back because if they don't, it's, <laughs> it's dire. Um, and they just do all these doughies and you think there is joy out here. Um, this is not the back of buttfuck. This is somewhere where people are living their best life and why don't we build to respond to that rather than trying to build these kind of livable cities where you can go down on a bike with a baguette and the the streets are lined with European trees and, you know, why don't we build that celebrates some of this stuff that's happening there that's, um, you know, that, that shows a real 
embracement of the place. That's already happening there, you know, without without searching to invent something new and to yeah, to exactly se- to celebrate the joy, to celebrate the human condition. Yeah, comes back to this idea that we often talk about on the program that architecture is for everybody. Yeah, so it's not reserved for the elite in a city, urban, single family home. Yeah, because I think that gets very um, sort of same, same, you know, like if you've got a particular architectural style or an architect that's building their type of stuff in different suburbs, in different states, and then that's quite influential, so you get other architects that mimic that, and then suddenly you've got quite a homogenised sort of... um, uh, exposure or access, I guess, experiential access into the place. It all gets blurred. It gets blurred. You, you lose the uniqueness. Yeah, whereas if you suddenly think, okay, what if the motorbike tracks are the roads and you somehow have to fit the houses around that, suddenly you've got a completely different situation. So I think that just pushing that boundary and allowing the north to take us to a place we never thought, we would never think of in our wildest imaginations, but it's there, then how could, that, how could that influence what we do in the South? Searching for this wild difference, but also the same, a wild truth. Yeah, is it wild? It's weird because, you know, um, Ben Crow will say, you know, find you weird. And it's only weird because you, you're doing something that everybody else thinks is different. Once you've nailed that weird, it's normal. Yeah. So... It's about looking at the north and thinking, well, it seems weird that, you know, there's this sort of countercultures happening and um, like people, uh, when you also look at the roads, the tracks go off the road because you don't need a driver's licence if you don't actually drive on the road. Incredible. So (laughs) the roads are immaterial. (laughs) That's such a larrikin innovation. (laughs) Going back to your point on dumb roads. Dumb roads, exactly. (laughs) And boring suburbia. Yeah, I'm going to bring that full circle around in a minute because I want to touch on your master's research while you were graduating at Curtin University. UWA. Oh, UWA. Apologies. Keysborough Church of the Resurrection by Edmund and Corrigan is just down the road from here. (gasps) I should try it there on the way back. You absolutely should. Still looking great as ever. And you did a piece of research that unpacked the precedent churches that Edmund Corrigan used to create this form, this geometry. And I've, I've been excited to speak about this building to someone that just knows it, knows, knows it well. Um, will you share something about what that project means to you and what it means for Australian architecture really? I think it was um, – well, it's kind of similar I guess to – I mean Corrigan was quite a controversial – Edmund and Corrigan, controversial figures uh, – uh, early days where they used um, the material of the suburbs. So they weren't looking for some glamorous brick that they'd found in Switzerland and shipping it over here. They were going, this is the suburb, this is the language of the suburbs. These are the materials that are used and that people are familiar with and we are building for those people. Yeah. So, um, so how do we use that language? But I guess they're the words that they're used, if, if you put it in a literary sense. And then the story is the the different churches and the way that they kind of wove them together, allegedly, in my <laughs> according to my in your, invest- in your investigations. <laughs> it was just classic, classic postmodernism, taking existing ideas, existing references and reimagining them, reworking them in, in particular yeah. style. Really, And it was 80s, also post-Vatican Vatican Council 1962 where – you know, religion went from being like, or God went from being awesome or full of awe where you'd walk into a building and you couldn't, there'd be no windows where you could see out into the real world. It would all be high. So, so God were, was above. God was above and it was a sort of fearful God and you were very sort of reverential. And then post-1962, the windows all lowered, you, you know, God was everywhere. Hmm. God was in the supermarket. God was in the, down there playing cricket. Um and so it was a much more domesticised version of God and the, the liturgy was in the, 
um, English in the vernacular rather than in Latin. And the architecture changed to reflect that. The architecture changed to reflect that and in Europe, that was an issue because they already had all these churches and how do you bring the windows down? <laughs> With a high cholesterol in a Gothic <laughs> cathedral, like Gothicism, yep. <laughs> so there was all these kind of, you know, dodgy amendments. But in Australia they were just building the churches because we were just growing. So we just hit the ground running and we just, you know, we nailed it. We had all these suburban churches which were also ridiculed by the Australian public because it, they felt a little bit, you know, the cringe of our churches aren't as sort of, Grand, grand, and awesome, but actually they were reflecting the the changes in the in um, you know that were put in place by the Vatican Council and Keysborough. I saw as the kind of leader of that, the sort of trailblazer. That you know, this is how you do it. Let me show you. So it, you, you can reference all the awesome churches in one, and we can use the materials of the suburb, and we can get the windows down, and you know, we can. There are some tricks, you know. It's not all um, right angles. It's got this fabulous sweeping roof. I know, amazing. The Japanese church, Santa Maria, very comes through instantly. I know. Some of the references are very legible, so I don't, I don't think your, your research was alleged. <laughs> that was certainly <laughs> obvious. But so what were some of the rarer church references that you were um, speculating were hidden in that design? Uh, well, there was all I had all of them. The sort of church in the round, the egg-shaped church, the um, the, the sort of basilica, which also uh, doubled as the kind of you know first place of commerce. Um, the Gothic pointy bits. Um, what else was there? Uh, the six-sided church, the eight-sided church. All of these. There was all this vestigial geometry you could you know, with a protractor, trace it all and find little elements of, of every kind of era of church. That's incredible. And we're so lucky to have it here, just down the road, being used, being enjoyed. I believe all those community buildings that were built as an ancillary to the precinct are all still standing and operational. Yes, yeah. And, and all still existing and being loved. So there were lessons for you there that in looking at the truth of what's in front of yeah, you. Yeah, I think so. And the coded knowledge, I guess. Um, because sometimes as an architect you you do have to you, – you, you do code knowledge in there and it's almost like a nerdy kind of, I don't know. Um, it's too secretive. Yeah, Lord of the Rings reference, you know, where, you know, people, if they want to, can find it but also they can appreciate it for just exactly mm. what it is. Do you think architecture doesn't let people in as easy as it maybe should? I think I think good architecture does because I think if you if you know if you've got good sort of spatial design and um, I think it does inherently I think all sometimes we overestimate um, the what we embellish will have a higher impact than perhaps it does. <laughs> but, yeah, I, th- I think I think I believe in it, yeah. I, I, I believe in it and I believe in the public. Yeah, I, I believe be- in the public too, yeah. I, I, I believe that people are, have that spatial intelligence, as Liam Van Shike writes, and have an ability to under- understand where they are, what beauty is, what good design is, what good architecture is. They certainly know when they have something bad. Having said that, I was in Perth when I wrote this and my brother was living in Melbourne. He was uh, 17 and playing rugby. So he drove down to the church to take some photos for me and he's on the phone to me and he's going, I think I'm here. I think this is the church. And he describes it. I go, that's it. And he goes, are you doing your master's thesis on this? (laughs) He goes, I think it's overrated. (laughs) It doesn't – it's very unassuming. It's very unassuming from the street. It doesn't look like a masterpiece of Australian architecture. I think that's the whole – it's it's the whole um, that I guess not sort of suburban culture that was – Australia's always had a little bit of an uneasy relationship with mm. and a cultural cringe with. But um, that, yeah. That cultural cringe is just another word for shame. Yeah. Without realising, I guess that was what the thesis was about and my PhD, that there is no need for that. Like it's actually something that could be celebrated. It, we didn't quite realise that we were ahead of the game. And that we could 
guess we could love to learn learn to love those parts that we've been rejecting. Yes, as and just like embrace the design. That's I really appreciate your description of these amazing world love, world renowned, glamorous churches. Right, this <laughs> glamour that was smashed together and put in Keysborough. And now sits as unassuming and perfect and it just proves that thesis that it doesn't have to be huge high grand glamour, but it does have to be good design and it does have to be well built because it is still standing today, used and loved. Exactly. It's robust. The yeah. ideas are robust. What is good design in your opinion? I think good design is not that different to good architecture or good art. It's a sort of synthesis of... Um, it's, I guess, an attempt to do things better, Mm. to look at an existing system, um, and work out what the, how it works, what the nuts and bolts are, what the processes are, and then to toggle some of those things and experiment with them and see what happens if, for me, that's what design is. It's that, um... It's that sort of wild experimentation, putting Mentos into the Coke, you know, mm-hmm. where you go, I mean, we, we know what happens there, so it's not a great example, but um, where you just throw something at the wall and see what sticks. So you throw an existing system at the wall and see what, what sticks and what doesn't and in that, um, in that messy outcome there will be something really interesting. And it's, it's about searching for a newness which – is otherwise said that it doesn't exist, right? It, we're told it's not real, that everything's been designed and tested. Yeah. But you're breaking that apart a little bit and you're saying let's try something completely wild to disrupt it. Yeah, so I guess it's a new relationship yeah. that you're looking for. So two things that go together in a way that you're not familiar with and then there's a whole set of decisions that have to be made as to how you put those two awkward things together mm. and it's those decisions that you make that really is the design. So I think that's 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 the way I think about it. That's that's actually a really neat formula because in future we're going to have a lot of really complex problems like that to to unpack and just expanding out to the broad, to the broader context this broader idea of well how are we going to live more sustainably? How are we going to adapt to the housing crisis? And previous guests on the show quite a number of them suggested it's going to be adaptive reuse. It's going to be taking McMansion, single-family homes that are really large, chopping them down into smaller apartments, smaller townhouses from the same building, or re-adapting office towers, right? But it's this complexity of those seemingly different and impossible things that are together to to create a newness to adapt to the extremes that we're in. Yeah. And I think also that takes it outside of architecture or art. It could be in, you know... um, commerce it can be in um infrastructure it can be in you know engineering it's, it's design thinking it, yeah it's it's well i don't like that term because Ooh, I okay think, yeah say more <laughs> i think that's just a sort of yeah i think it's a catch phrase or a sound bite i don't think i think it's meaningless in the way it's described okay but i think if you were to really um take that concept of putting two awkward things together and then working out how that that's a lot more experimental and a lot more high risk and it costs. Yeah. Which is why design, you know, is, is a difficult game. Got to have skin in the game. You, yeah, it's, and it's a difficult game to make money from too because the, that type of experimentation is very expensive. What is that cost? Coming back to my question on shame, I suspect it's to do with the vulnerability really. Yeah, or financial. Yeah. Yeah, yeah just to have... Um, yeah, to have the resources and time to be able to – because there's a lot of – you make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Like there's a lot of failures. You need those failures to be able to move forward. And I think in design – and design thinking is used very loosely because mm. I think um, the industry outside of architecture and design don't know that they could justify that the cost of that failure, you know, mm. that, that – um, you know, and the, the sort of – it's a very uncertain, um, anxious-ridden process to really come at change and I think that's very costly. 
and to find innovation. Is that a bigger systemic conversation about how do we how do we back R and D? How do we fund research and development? Yeah, I think so. How do we fund startups? How do we fund design innovation? Actually, value it as something that yeah. needs to be founded. Yeah, mm. yeah. It usually comes down to a few remarkable individuals that are prepared to put that time in. Um, it's worth, yeah. <laughs> it's worth it's worth noting or the design professional should really stop working for free. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Listeners, if you are creative, please do not work for free. <laughs> so it's well worth noting though for, for Edmund and Corrigan's, they used a lot of brick and brick was a very cheap material readily available at the time. There were so many skills in the construction sector. So, so, many, so many of the patterns were collaborated with the brickies on site. Just an amazing universe of production that doesn't exist anymore. Bricks are one of the most expensive materials I could pick now. I know, it's interesting, isn't it? But also that brick patterning, which sort of comes back to textiles a little bit in the, in the power of um, the unit or the module um, and, and thinking that, it's yeah, it's just bricks and you can do a brick wall, but then within that colour choice you can, you can tell a kind of secret message or you can um, convey a whole other language. Mm, you absolutely love colour. It, it's yeah. <laughs> evident in your work is just popping across every screen, every drawing, every email. It's it's there. It's, it's bustling. It's jumping. You're doing these incredible textile rugs. But how? Why textile? How do we? How do you come to this moment where you're always interested in? Where you're a sewer and knitter? I, yeah, I was. But I also I think it comes from my um, probably my mother's side of the family where. Um, they were always knitting, always sewing, always. Um, my mum did a lot of weaving when we were in um, London I, and, and I guess being the wife of an expat, um, she was, I just remember her always creating something um, as a, you know, probably part of the 70s culture where wives had to go and follow their husband's careers and she was a very intelligent woman so she continually... Um, made these brass rubbings in London, weaving. We always had these wool woven pillows that were just so scratchy to put your face on. But I <laughs> <laughs> Are your rugs softer so, though now? Yeah, they're much softer. But earnestly, you know, um, mum was creating these things and I think it was very influential. Also when we were in Africa, my aunts would send over... Um, dresses that they'd made for me or things that they'd knitted. So it was this kind of um, another sense of belonging, I guess, of, of a community that you're not with yeah. uh, keeping you in mind. What an incredible convergence of your family history into something so, so unique as these incredible rugs. So you, you, moved, you moved away from academia and now tell me about your current practice. So now I'm, I guess it's a, it's an art practice which is foregrounding 4.6 billion years of um, earth behaviour and um, it started winning the Tapestry, Australian Tapestry Design Prize for Architects where, um, well, it started in my PhD really where I was looking at the Pilbara and studying the geology and and, and looking for uh, looking for answers, I think, in mm. those maps and you were with me when we were doing that and, I, and changed the colours a million different times <laughs> and because I to try and convey that behaviour to people who weren't geologists and to try and see, I guess, the story. Um, and then uh, won the Tapestry Prize, which was a sort of piece, a great big piece that was post-Gondwana and told a story of um, the more the east side of Australia, which is a lot more volatile and juvenile in its geology, a lot more volcanic arcs, a lot more um, movement Um a lot more uh, tectonic plate movement, which which creates quite a like a stained glass um, swirly pattern, which is quite different to the uh, pre Gondwana, which is much much older. Uh, and then thought, what what if we keep drawing? So kept drawing, and then found all these shapes in in the geology. There's these chunks of different ages, and they look like when you look at clouds, when you lie on your back yeah. and you see there's a rabbit. And then it changes into a dinosaur and, and that's what I saw these animals in the um, geology and they were very um, specific to different eras and epochs. So drawing those up 
made – it was a kind of nice way of animating the geology and just think, you know, to convey the message that geology is continually moving and it is alive. Mm. Um, but also to show that there – Australia we take for granted if we're not geologists that it is the shape of Australia that we all know. But actually it's only that shape right now and it's actually changing all the time. But previously there's all these chunks that basically there's hitchhikers that just sort of bumped into each other and formed the shape of Australia and then continued to kind of move around and influence each other in their shapes. But, you know, we've got ground here that is 4.6 billion years old, which is up in the Pilbara, and that is like start of Earth. That's birth of this planet. That's how old the Pilbara is. It's been here as long as the Earth has. And then you've got sort of where the Byron Bay to down to Newcastle, which is probably the youngest part of Australia. And that's the rug you took on your epic road trip. That's the rug we took on the I took on the road trip. We including the rug as a <laughs> buddy. <laughs> what shape did that rug have? Was it the dinosaur or the It was funny a cicada. One? It was a cicada. Yeah. So it's the sort of cicada going down with the two wings. With the wings open. Yeah. The the irregular shapes are so beguiling as well. You know, people think of rugs, tapestries, any sort of woven art as being quite, you know, squared and regular. But this 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 shape that is following that earth, it's, it's forcing you to look at those lines in a way you, you don't get to otherwise if it was politely framed in a square. I think that was that came out of – I really wanted it to look like if you'd pulled a heart mm. out of a sheep. Yeah. You know, you'd, you wouldn't just be able to pull that heart out cleanly. There'd be veins and – stuff so um i did notice some of them have little tentacles yeah they do so it's like the the fault lines don't come out clean so in carving them up trying to think of or a christmas cake if you take an almond out you know it or a cherry out it has a little bit of cake on it so it's sort of like structurally if you were to pull these bits out of australia what what would stick what would fall away nicely and what would just you know what would be sheer and what would be messy so i guess that's that's what governed those edges. I love how you celebrate that imperfection and also give it the permission and even deliberate encouragement really to, to be beautiful, like you're crafting and curating that detail. And it comes back to the very first thing you said almost that it's about looking at the nature that we're in and that we're part of nature. Yeah. And I thought to myself, well, we don't, we don't persecute nature. We don't persecute trees for being gnarly and having bits and edges and being curly and, and whirly, right? Yeah. We just had a text message come in. Let's open it up and see. What do you see the future of Australian architecture as? Oh. Especially especially someone who's studied and, you know, been part of Australian architecture and practised both in practice and academia and now you've moved into the sense of an art practice. Do, do you have fresh eyes? I think um, there'll be a lot more Indigenous engagement. I think that will... Um, and if that's um, well thought through and the right people are involved, I think that will be, you know, incredibly, incredibly interesting because there are, like in earth science, there are stories and culture there which could inform the way that we build and the way that we think about things as long as it's not token. Yeah. I think I'm really against that token contribution of, you know, um, Slap an artwork on the outside. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really... Um, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. It's not actually allowing a way of thinking to influence. I guess it goes back to that initial idea of design in how uh, we think through things differently mm. or we break our own systems of thinking, which are only there because they're iterative from someone did it before and then we've changed it 10 years later and a couple of, you know... Um, bureaucrats have changed the rules and it's not really led by what's what's the best solution. It's just best practice, which are not the same things. So it would be really interesting to be able to let that different way of thinking influence the way we think through the way we build, you know, the way we ge- – ge- geometry. Such an opportunity to find a new architecture. It really is. But I, I guess it – depends on having the right people to lead the way. And, you know, at the moment there's such a shortage of um, 
Indigenous architects who could, I think they're, you know, they're exhausted. And they're so overloaded, there's so yeah. much cultural load on them and on lounge councils. I mean, they're a bit less busy now the Commonwealth Games have been called off, but it's really the expectations and the pressure that's being put on First Nations people is unfair. So I'd really like to see that progress. Be elevated. Because otherwise I think if it just ma- becomes mandatory and we don't have the valuable resources, then we will get more of that tokenistic type contribution and th- I think that would be a shame. So ideally uh, the former would be I'd like to see. A real integral engagement, collaboration. And a challenge to the way we think. Let, let it challenge the way we think. Yeah, let it make us uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Got to have that discomfort to to grow to to find something different to find something new. Yeah, I agree. There's risks of of innovation yeah, that are required. Risk, yes, that that pro bono stuff I was talking. About. It always comes back full circle in this <laughs> program. Maybe it's uh, just the nature of your host this evening. That I, I like to tie things tie things back through tie, tie things together. But now that you have these fresh eyes and an art an art practice and. Something that's just so you, you know, I saw these rugs and I'm like, oh, my God, Emma. It's, it's just so Emma. It's so Emma Jackson. It's incredible. Um, it's such an, such an expression of your passion and your values and your interest. Having that fresh air from architecture, do you have any advice for us that are in practice or in academia look, looking now being able to look back into the profession and you're still an architect of course and you're, you're still in a way it's it still is architecture textile is architecture but this this perspective of difference is there anything you can offer us back now I think um it's an interesting question of what architecture is because I think that the way that um the practice is approaching design is as an architect so I think there's a level of um, the way an architect synthesises a lot of different ideas and not just ideas but also a client, you know, um, a behaviour or a culture within a building. All of those things have to be synthesised uh, into a form, which is a building. In this case it's not a building, it's a rug, but there is still the synthesis of those um, different ideas as well as something slightly provocative as well um, which is deliberate it's not just a rug it, it is sort of a co- you know a sort of comment on what we hang on our walls and you know um, uh, gratuitous designs on rugs mm. and looking back through history and seeing that rugs were often family heirlooms, they were handed down through families, they had some kind of cultural, um, familial, um, historical grounding stories um, that were woven into the rugs and in in old castles if a different clan won at war, they would rip the boundaries off the, um, the tapestries which were the previous family's logo and well, that's probably not the right word, but um, crest, crest, and then they would retapestry around the new crest. So there, there was this sense of that these textiles were um, banners of belonging, really. Mm. So I think that that is, this is my version of, I guess, a banner of belonging that it's rooted very deeply in Australia's earth science. Yeah, here, 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 here. We've got another question come in from a, a, another anonymous texter. Um, you get a lot of inspiration from nature, just like Gaudi did. Do you think this is one of the best ways for architects rather than inventing their own? It's interesting because I saw an interview by uh, Laurie Anderson, who I used to listen to a lot at uni, um, and she was talking about um, sort of self-indulgent design ideas where the with artist or the is led by um, – something driven from within themselves. Magisterial gaze. Yeah, and I've always been against that. I've, I've never never been a, a sort of believer in that. But I think with nature it's an observation, uh, a deep observation of something that just gets more and more complex the more you look at it. Mm. So there is just so much um, kind of complexity and wonder which I think um, – 
you know, as I said earlier, I think we're just dumb humans and to think that, you know, I could manifest some extraordinary um, idea from within, um, I just is laughable. I, I'd much prefer to uh, the curiosity of looking at and something that is adapting to its circumstance in a really interesting, even maladapting, um, in a really interesting way. Yeah, that, that that search and pursuit because it it and the the imperfection of, of that complexity that we're discussing, right? It reflects back to ourselves how imperfect and complicated yeah, and exactly. weird and messy we are. Having said that, I'm not I'm not um, denigrating people who do have extraordinary ideas from within that emerge and create incredible buildings. <laughs> That's just not me. <laughs> it, it's, it's also not necessarily that accessible for people though sometimes. Yeah. And, and when we talk about it in the context of public architecture, people love something that reflects them. They, they want to see a building that's almost like looking in a mirror. That's, that shows their own community, their own context, their own place, their own geology, their own, their own uh, moment. Yeah, I guess the whole right-angled geometry, which I'm looking at around perfect, us, perfect white box. Perfect white box. It's economical. Like you, it, it's expensive to produce atypical geometry. So it makes sense. I guess you just have to pick your moment. Um, of uh, going off grid. <laughs> going off the beaten track <laughs> on that dirt bike. Let's, let's, let's run with the metaphor. I love that one. What, what has been some of your, your favourite moments in, in heading into this textile journey? I think that the favourite and hardest, I think, um, are trying to make a design object or an art object economically viable is really difficult and I think we're not trained at that in architecture. Yeah, there's no business. There's no business. I'm very lucky to have um, my mother is a mentor who is an incredible um, businesswoman but also never said that that sounds um, nuts or that's too hard. It's always uh, how. How are we going to do that? So I think... Jumping off out of academia into this has been incredibly scary and there's been many moments where I've thought, what am I doing? Why did I leave a secure job? (laughs) But I've just held my nerve um, uh, and I guess had many conversations with my mum about how do we do this, how how do I do this? Um, And that is that has been the biggest learning curve and probably the most rewarding thing, mm. I think, and, and something I, I would like to contribute back to the culture because I think that there's a real um, dearth of that kind of education. How do, you make, um, how do you make a business out of something um, unique and artistic without it being considered dirty or, you know, selling out, which I think a lot of architecture and art has has that... Um, They're afraid of being commercial. Yeah, like how do you... It's a, it's a tricky line. It's a tricky line. What's your biggest tip? What's your biggest takeaway from that? Ah, oh, the biggest takeaway. Well, I would go with Ben Crow's um, Embrace Your Weird. Uh because so much comes out of it as you as it becomes less weird to you. It's, you. If you follow the thing, like the road trip, which a lot of people thought was weird, um, it makes sense afterwards. So you sort of almost uh, lean into your gut, uh, even though there's some doubt, and then as it plays out, you see the the re- you can see the reason, the logic. And it sort of creates a whole lot of um, a rich network for you to mm. um, embrace. I think your words will give a lot of comfort and reassurance to, to listeners, particularly because so many architects have creative side hustles, extra projects, things they're doing. I mean, I'm here on the radio, example A, to to, to share that perspective, to, to find your weird and stick with your weird. Yes, oh, and make a culture, which is, you know, which, which 
these ideas can thrive in, which you're um, absolutely doing here, which is, you know, we're all very grateful for. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's very kind. But no, I, I absolutely enjoy it. And it's a pleasure to have these conversations to, I guess, coming right back to your first point to remove that sort of pretentious, glamorous mystique around something that's for everyone. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think I've nailed that. <laughs> <laughs> you really have. You you really have. But you've you've also always done that throughout your practice by you know, looking at car culture, looking at motorbike culture, looking at some of the most extreme and forgotten places, and saying no, no, that's actually fantastic. <laughs> let's let's make something there. Let's let's try to find find some sort of uh, pursuit or possibility. So what gives you hope? Hope. I think – I feel like colour gives me hope. Colour um, and the ability to communicate an idea beyond uh, myself and my own kind of thinking um, and see it kind of manifest and reflect mm. um and I think I guess that's why I'm doing this thing with earth science in that I do think that the answers are hiding in plain sight and the more I guess we look at human innovation and it just turns in on itself a little bit and I think we need to break tear through that thinking and look at the dumb stuff um and that, that's, I think, where the hope is in the dumb stuff. In your case, it's literally under people's feet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pardon the pun, those bits, those bits, the, the moments. Dirty bits. Yeah. <laughs> the dirty bits, those <laughs> moments that were uh, overlooked or, or forgotten. You, you mentioned um, that, well, that better Indigenous engagement or like really deep, true, meaningful engagement is innovation in architecture, but bigger picture, where do you see that going in art or? Any sort of feelings and predictions for you there? Um, it well, there's an interesting new generation of indigenous artists, and they they are engaging with um, some new technologies, and you know, producing some pretty interesting, provocative work. And I think that's really exciting. Um, and I think there's people that you've interviewed, like Christine, Dr. Christine Phillips. Um, and Boda Bell, who's currently doing his PhD at RMIT, both looking at Indigenous engagement. Um, so I think that that's, you know, there are more voices out there. There are more, um, and again, through the something like a PhD program is that investment in thinking about the different and different ways of doing things, which, um, uh, you know, is really, really exciting. And giving that an invaluable space to actually thinking about yeah. things properly. Yeah. One, one final comment before we wrap up. We mentioned just last week about colour, dopamine dressing, and the, the idea of like, <laughs> have you not, you've heard this one? No, I haven't. You haven't. It's the idea that you wear crazy bright colours in order to stimulate dopamine production and be happy and it, and it makes you feel happier. These, these crazy colours and it's a whole aesthetic or fashion aesthetic movement across social media at the moment. So I thought you might be able oh to God. offer a comment like d- dopamine rugs. Yes. That's that's what your rugs Definitely. for me. So. Yeah, as a kid I think I would sort out my um, Derwent pencils in their colours. That would make me very happy. And also buttons. My nan had lots of uh, jars of buttons that I would colour, colour coordinate. You have immense patience for colour. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Incredible. Thank you so much for joining me on the program. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonarong Country. You can replay the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hey folks. 
Join us at the Radio Carum Trivia Night on Friday the 1st of March at the Carum Patterson Lake Sports Pavilion. Tickets are only $25 per person and includes entry into our door prize and a drink on arrival. Wonderful. Don't pass up this opportunity to win bragging rights for the rest of the year and win some fabulous prizes. Tickets are still available at Radio Carum's website, radiocarum.org. We'll see you there, folks.